Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you will help us to understand this ancient word with mysterious images and confusing pictures. Help us to see, Lord, both how you treated your ancient people and, Lord, that, what that means for the way you treat us and your world. Please, Lord, give us honest eyes that seek to understand honestly what you say to us. And even if it be painful, Lord, to put it into practice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was um, talking to a group of 10-year-old boys uh, last week and um, I asked them what they wanted to do when they grew up. And one of the boys perked up immediately and said, a dustman. Why? I asked. Well, he said, because it's one of the hardest jobs in the world. I'm not sure why, why you wanted to do one of the hardest jobs in the world. I, I have to say, most people I know want an easy job. Most, I still meet people who think that um, I must have chosen to be a pastor because you only work one day a week. Um, but this boy, this boy wanted a challenge. And uh, he told me that he'd been watching a television program about the hardest jobs in the world. And uh, Dustman figured very high on the list. And I started thinking about that. See, I realized that actually the conventional hardest jobs in the world, like brain surgeon or prime minister, in some senses are not hard at all. Because they are deeply fulfilling jobs, which uh, um, uh, many young people dream of doing. The television program, I think, was absolutely right. Dustman is a good candidate for hardest job in the world because it's inglorious, relentless, never finished, filthy work. And then I had another thought. I thought to myself, God is a dustman. I mean, he does certainly have more glamorous aspects of his job description. He is um, the Supreme Prime Minister, Chief Medical uh, uh, Officer, uh, Supreme Allied Commander of the Armies of Heaven, Master Engineer, the University's Chief Botanist, Ornithologist, Geologist, Cosmologist and Scientist. But I think the hardest job, uh, part of God's job description, is dustman. <laughs> The remover of filth. Of course, I don't mean the filth which is placed in the black bags at the side of our houses. I mean the filth which builds up in our hearts. Sometimes I have to do a little bit of dustman work of that sort. Sometimes, uh, frankly, my time is spent um, wading around in the sewers of people's private lives trying to clear blockages, cart away detritus. And I, I, I can tell you, it's not a pleasant job. 
not to mention what I find in my own heart. Imagine the dustman work that God has to do. But do it he does for his people. Day after day, week after week, year after year, God is there clearing away the rubbish. That's what Zechariah wants to tell us this morning in, in these two visions that we read. We've been away from Zechariah for a while, so let, let me just spend a little while reminding you <coughs> of what we have learned so far from Zechariah chapters 1 to 4. Remember, Zechariah lived in the, uh, in the 6th century BC when Israel had returned to the promised land after their exile in, in Babylon, but they were still living a miserable, powerless life under the overall authority of the Babylonian Empire. And uh, in the midst of that, they were trying to rebuild the temple and the city and re-establish themselves as the people of God. And in that context, Zechariah has a series of visions. The first vision, remember, was that man um, among the myrtle trees with the other mysterious horses. We learned in that vision that actually, just like Darius the emperor had his spies out over his whole empire on horseback, so God is watching over this world. He hasn't lost sight of his world, even though they may feel like he has sometimes. He watches over the whole world. Then um, uh, Zechariah receives a second vision. Four horns symbolizing strength. Four, four craftsmen, perhaps symbolizing skill in building. The craftsmen overthrow the power of the horns, indicating that God is sovereign over even the greatest powers in the world. But uh, um, remember... God wasn't going to use those great powers to rebuild his people. The third vision started to indicate to us how he was going to build. There was a vision of a man with a measuring line. Do you remember? Uh, measuring out the city of Jerusalem. And urgently the angel sent to say, no, we mustn't plan to build walls. God is building without walls because walls give a false sense of security and God himself will be the people's security. Walls actually limit the size of a city as the uh, um, uh, ancient city walls of Oxford indicate. For cities to be allowed to grow, sometimes it has to burst through its walls. I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. I will be its glory within. That was the city that God was building. That was the community, that, that is the community that he is building today. People who live without walls because of his abundant blessing and the security he gives us. But how? That was what the next two visions started to answer. How? What's going to be the basic mechanics of that building? The fourth vision showed us the high priest. Initially filthy, 
but then robed in splendor. Because the fundamental thing God needed to do for his people was to take away their sins, take away that filth we've already talked about, and robe his people, starting with the high priest, the representative of the people, in glorious splendor. God will forgive his people and so build a community. The fifth vision was a vision of a lampstand. The significance, remember, of that lampstand is it was rather like the lampstand that stood in the temple, signifying the light of God's presence. But this lampstand was brighter than that temple lampstand. And the message was very clear. Not by might, nor by power, says the Lord Almighty, but by my spirit. I will shine in this world by the power of my spirit. And in many senses, the um, fourth and fifth visions are central to what Zechariah needed to know. They are central physically, there are as many after them as before, but they are central in the message that Zechariah needed to learn. God is going to build a community now which is a forgiven community, like the forgiven high priest. God is going to build a community now which is empowered by his spirit, like that lampstand. When we get to vision six and seven, then we're coming down the other side of the, uh, of the mountain, so to speak. We've seen those central things God wants to communicate, but there are some important questions still left outstanding. Imagine this question in Zechariah's mind. Okay, God, so I've started to see what you're doing. I can see that you're going to build a community of forgiven people living by the power of your spirit. But what about the ongoing sin in people's lives? What about the sin in my life? Is it enough just to say that that's forgiven and not to worry about it? Or in fact, should I understand more of your attitude towards sin? And the answer to that question starts to be unfolded in these two visions. It's vitally important not only to understand that God forgives our sin, and that is the basis upon which we are gathered together as his people. God is a, a dustman in that sense. But to realize as well that uh, God has more to say about sin than that. Serious things that we need to understand if we are really to understand his heart. Vision 6, then, uh, gives us a vision of a flying scroll. Chapter 5, verse 1. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. The angel asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 30 feet long, 15 feet wide. This scroll is, is flying because God wants it to be seen by everybody. 
It's not, no, it's, this is no dusty document lost in the shelves of some ancient library. This is, a, this is a message for all to see flying over the whole nation. And this scroll is clearly unrolled too so that it can be read. Or perhaps even more importantly, so that the message which is on it can become active in the world. And that message is enormous. This unrolled scroll is, is, is bigger than one of those big advertising hoardings on the Cowley Road. This is something momentous that God wants to say. What's the message, verse 3? This is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished, and according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in his house and destroy it, both its timbers and its stones. I think it actually probably steals the thunder of um, these couple of verses to translate in verse 3 uh, the message as a curse, because equally well it could be translated an oath. This is God's a solemn declaration of God. This is his, his, his oath. And um, uh, mainly in the Bible, God's oaths are oaths of blessing. So Abraham here said, I will surely bless you and make you a great nation. But there is a flip side to God's oath as well. This is an oath about banishment and destruction. Why does God pick on these two of the Ten Commandments to uh, particularly single out theft and swearing falsely by his name? Perhaps partly because those two sins represent two aspects of our responsibility in this world. We are called to love our fellow human beings as ourselves, and part of that is stealing. We are called to, to, to love God and not treating his name uh, or his person lightly is, of course, part of that. But I suspect that, that there's more to it than that. I suspect, actually, quite consciously, God has chosen to mention two of the less significant of the Ten Commandments. Other of the commandments get more airing elsewhere. Murder is treated very severely as a sin against our fellow human beings. Idolatry is the main sin against God that uh, the Old Testament takes up. But even the seemingly insignificant elements of our behaviour are watched by God. Even those slightly less prominent sins are subject to God's solemn oath. Everyone, he says, who indulges in these sins will be banished from his presence. His word will pursue them relentlessly and destroy them. 
How could that be? We cry. Surely God is a God of love, and he certainly is. But there is a passion in God's heart which is as deep as his love. His passion to remake his whole universe as a perfect, sorrowless place, as uh, was being read about earlier on in in, uh, Revelation chapter 21, it's mentioned. And in order to do that, God must remove evil. What about his forgiveness? What about... um, the fact that uh, the fourth vision already has been a vision of uh, the filthy priest made clean. Well, uh, of course, that vision is not at all an empty vision. No, this uh, this is God's judgment here on all of those who at root are still committed to sin. Who at root actually have not come to God for his forgiveness. No matter how minor the external appearance of their sins may be. Now if at the very very bottom of their hearts They are not horrified at sin at all. They rather love it. They are not horrified at the thought of treating God lightly at all. Rather, they're committed to it. For people like that, even if they are within the visible people of God, God's oath stands against them. We need to know that. It is not sufficient, you see, simply to be part of the community here to be saved. It is not sufficient simply to go to church. It is not sufficient simply to say, I am a Christian. It is not even sufficient simply to believe all the right things. If there is not a fundamental change of heart in us, then we are in severe danger. Of course, that doesn't mean that all sins must have been uh, completely purged from our lives. But it must mean that there is an absolutely fundamental core change that has happened in us. That means that at root, we know I'm not a thief. I do not treat God's word lightly. God has changed my heart. We must be in no doubt that actually God will banish and destroy all those who continue to practice evil. One of the most chilling of Jesus' parables is the one in which a crowd of people come to a wedding party and um, they've got in. 
but one of them isn't dressed properly. And the host goes up and uh, politely says, friend, how did you get in here when you're not dressed for this? And the man has no answer. So the host says, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I wish I didn't have to say such things. It does pain me deeply to have to say it, but we must be faithful to God's word. God is warning Israel that though they are promised his forgiveness and though they are promised renewal by his spirit, individuals who decline that stand even more firmly under God's solemn oath that he will banish them forever. But evil does take a different form amongst God's people as well, doesn't it? It's not just found amongst uh, perhaps some people who in the end are not committed to God at all. It, 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 it pervades through even the lives of those who are God's people. And it's to help us to understand how God treats that that the, that the uh, seventh vision is given to us. This vision of the woman in a basket. Zechariah sees this, this basket, or perhaps a barrel. Verse 5, The angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see what this is that is happening. I asked, What is it? He replied, It's a measuring basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. I think the NIV's footnote is better, actually, that the barrel is not the iniquity of the people initially. It is the, the appearance of the people. This is what they look like. This barrel or basket actually was an ordinary household item. It might hold flour or other, other provisions. And it's got a heavy lid of lead on it. Surely, perhaps, just the normal security for, uh, for something like that. Or is it, perhaps, because there's something inside this barrel that we would rather no one saw, that we would rather didn't get out? Verse 7. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the bark basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. Lurking, you see, in that most um, um, treasured, intimate centre of life, the kitchen. Seemingly quite innocuously amidst the clutter of a normal house, was evil threatening to burst out, wickedness. How's God going to deal with that, then? 
Well, first of all, he forcibly contains that uh, wickedness. The angel, it says, struggles with the woman. He pushes her back, to, back into the basket. He, he jams the lid town tight. It would almost be comical if it wasn't so serious. And then some altogether different women appear in verse 9. Then I looked up and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. They have the wind on their wings or perhaps could it be the spirit on their wings since it's the same word. And they have storks wings. The stork was proverbial in the ancient world because um, they believed, at least, I'm not sure whether it's true, they believed though that adult storks still looked after their parents, unlike most birds and people. So storks were often used as a godly example. Actually in, the, uh, in Latin, for instance, the stork was called the pious one. And in Hebrew, which is the language which is uh, used here, storks were called the birds of faithful love. So when it says they had storks' wings, the wings of storks, you could equally well translate it, they had the wings of faithful love. And those wings carry the basket away. Not right away. Away from the earth initially, between earth and heaven. But finally, far, far away. God's faithful, settled purpose for his people, for us, is to restrain the wickedness in our hearts, to bear it away. Don't you feel a sense of sympathy, a sense of understanding, a sense of empathy with that picture? First of all, of this innocent container in the household that contains such a dangerous contents. Don't you feel that in your heart sometimes? Don't you feel like our weaknesses, our failures, our secret thoughts and our secret sins could easily get out and just completely overwhelm us? Well, God will hold them back. That's what he's saying. For his people whom he has forgiven, he will hold them back. The Apostle Paul says to the Roman Christians in, Roman chapter, in Romans chapter 6, Sin shall not be your master. It is a promise. There may be a struggle because wickedness is powerful. But God is determined to restrain it, to push it back, to put the lid on. And then in time, God is determined to take it away like those women with the Spirit on their wings, with faithful wings, to bear it away 
anyone who's been a Christian for a while will know that experience that sins and weaknesses that once used to tyrannize us they do go eventually yes there are other things that come over the horizon that need to be dealt with but we do not forever if we are growing in Christ find ourselves always wrestling with exactly the same problem because God bears it away Here, though, is a darker side to that uh, uh, vision that um, Zechariah asks about, verse 10. Where are they taking the basket, he says. And the angel replies, to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. This is a tough truth that Zechariah is being told. God is actually going to allow those who love wickedness to worship wickedness. The country of Babylonia was, of course, the great wicked superpower that Israel um, uh, lived under the power of. But actually here, it's called by its oldest name, Shinar. Shinar was the region, the same region, but the, the Shinar, that region had the name Shinar millennia before when the people who, who were there at that time gathered together to build the Tower of Babel. Well, now another building is being built. Apparently, even built by these uh, angelic women by these faithful angels. The basket of wickedness is going to be set down at its heart, perhaps to be treasured at the heart of Babylon's life, perhaps though even to be worshipped in that temple to wickedness. God allows that. If people choose wickedness, God allows them to do so. At his deepest level, he doesn't want anyone to choose that. He longs for all people to repent and turn to him, but he honours our decisions. That's what he's doing right now in the world today. He is uh, purifying his people. Those who have said with all their heart they want to know him and be forgiven by them, by him. He forgives them. He restrains sin in their lives and bears it, bears it away. But he is honouring as well the decisions of those who turn away from God. He says very well, let them do so. If they want wickedness at the centre of their life, then I will not stop them. Heaven and hell, you see, are just the final culmination of that process. When God finally makes all things new, when he finally completes 
his purposes for his creation. He will finally bear away all traces of wickedness from his new creation because he will give his people what they have set their hearts on. But he will also allow those who choose evil to have it in its terrible final form too. Away from me into outer darkness, says Jesus. What they have set their hearts on, they will have. God will bear away evil from his people. Now and for eternity. But evil will rest on those who choose it now and for eternity. So what does that mean for us? It is possible, you see, that you know in your heart of hearts you're not one of God's people. Even though everybody else may think you are. God is not deceived. If Zechariah's vision was repeated in this room, then sadly that massive scroll would be over your head. And it will not go away simply by trying to forget it. It may be that for you, actually, it's much, much more obvious. You're not so much like uh, one of those people amongst the people of God. You, you know that you're not part of the people of God, and everybody else does too. Well, we need to know that actually God lets us have the choice we make. Even shockingly, allowing a temple to be built so that we may worship wickedness until it's too late. But it's my hope and confidence here that most of us, most of us here know that God has changed our hearts that God has turned us around. At the very core of our being, we love God. We hate wickedness. The word for us, you see, is that God will restrain what remains of sin in our lives. Will not let it out of the out of the basket. Will not let the, the cat out of the bag, if you want to use a modern uh, idiom. He will not allow it to overwhelm you, though there may be days when it feels like it. It's a characteristic of my early Christian experience that actually 
I couldn't believe that I would persevere more than a few more days as a Christian. But God looks after us. And God bears away that sin. Till one day, in the new heaven and the new earth, it will be completely gone. God does the hardest job. God is a dustman.